0: Yo, Iacama land
1: Here we are
0: Climbing from the line
1: Let's just talk, let's talk Vamos falar,
0: solta o verbo, tamo aqui pra abavorar Aí juventude fica ligada Lorena chegou aqui na parada Vamos falar Climate change, climate mitigation, what your life and everyone
1: Good morning, afternoon, evening, wherever you may be. My name is Alfredo, and you are now tuned in to the Climate Frontline podcast. In this show, we engage with community leaders, movement builders. We engage with folks who are in different industries, leading different industries, as well as artists. And we have conversations that change the climate narrative by focusing on those communities closer that are that are closer to the climate front line. And our community, the community we're cultivating here, does this one conversation at a time. So today I am excited to bring you someone who holds a special place in my heart. And I'm excited for you to meet her, uh, Anita Yap. Thank you, Anita, for being in the show.
0: Hi, Alfredo. Thanks for having me.
1: Yeah, and thank you for welcoming me into your house in this series of episodes I'm doing touring the Pacific Northwest. I'm just happy to have the opportunity to capture some of the conversations that we've been having through through this show today. So for those folks who may not know you, I, I would love for you to just share a little bit of who you are, your favorite food, or maybe your favorite tea, since we're having tea right now. (laughs) I know you have several, but yeah. Just tell us a little bit about yourself, Anita.
0: I will. Thank you for having me, Alfredo. First, I want to start out with a land acknowledgement and recognition, um, since we're here in Portland, Oregon. So I want to just say that we are on the unceded lands of the Clackamas, Cowlitz, and Confederated Tribes of the Grand Ronde. And what we're calling Portland, Oregon, and Multnomah County are the ancestral lands of the Multnomah, Wasco, Cathlamet, Clackamas, Cowlitz, bands of the Chinook, Tualatin, Kalapuya, Molala, and many other tribes who made their homes along the Columbia and Willamette Rivers. I am an Asian Pacific Islander, Native Hawaiian, and also Chinese, but I was born in in Oregon, in Portland. So my parents came from Hawaii after World War II um, to Oregon uh, to go to college. And so that's how I, they met here in, in Portland. They didn't know each other in Hawaii, but since they were both from Hawaii, they were naturally attracted to each other. So that's how I got here. And so my experience growing up in Portland uh, back in the day, there was not a lot of racial diversity and even, even the Asian community was pretty small. And so my experience growing up in Portland and Oregon has, was challenging, you know, basically from day one, I knew that there was racism just because that's kind of what the United States is well known for as well as Portland. So I just realized that I was going to have a challenging time. Growing up, no matter what I did, but my parents were great. They said, "You know, you can be anything you want and do whatever you want." Well, that was really great for them to tell me, but um, it didn't really happen that way, as as you may know, just because of racism and sexism and all the other isms that are out there. So, I tried my best, and I, you know, I studied actually forestry. So I have a forestry degree. So I worked in in the woods and did lots of um, environmental work and then i got my degree in urban planning but i studied environmental policy as well just because growing up here in oregon because of my family being from hawaii the natural world is really important and so food production my mother was um, one of the earliest gleaners <laughs> back in the 60s with some of the farms around here and Growing up in Hawaii during the Depression and the war, she was food insecure. So she really made sure that she knew where the food was growing and where to get it, and how to preserve it, and to make sure we were fed well. Uh, so with that kind of context, growing up, it really shaped my, um, you know, view of the world, um, and also, you know, what's going on now in Hawaii, um, especially with climate, is it's pretty dire in a lot of the Pacific islands as well. You know, climate change with rising sea levels and storm surge. So a lot of my family and community over there are are really struggling as well. And just the resource extraction from corporations there on geothermal and all other sorts of things has really devastated the economy of the community. You know, that money does not stay there. So that's kind of the community context from a Pacific Ring experience that I bring. But growing up here in Portland and in Oregon, um, I actually moved away from Portland right after high school went to college. And then I moved back here about 15 years ago just because of the racial diversity. Having lived elsewhere in Oregon, I just really needed the community context and support. So I really moved where i am now which is as you mentioned close to 82nd um and it's called the Jade district Uh, and that's actually something that was coined by the um portland development commission pdc they call themselves prosper portland now but it's the history of prosper portland as you're probably familiar as urban renewal districts um have a really don't have a really good Story with communities of color, in particular the Black community. So it's kind of a double-edged sword, having kind of a designation with some financial and uh, you know recognition by an organization that has not treated many communities of color, in particular the Black community, well. So we really talked about it when I was on the Apano board. If how do we how do we deal with this? How do we hold ourselves accountable to other community members? getting this money from the government, even though PDC, Prosper Portland, is our money. You know, it's our tax money. So it's not like us and them, but it's controlled by um, people in the government who don't look like us.
1: And for the audience who may not know what APANO means, could you just break that down? Oh, yeah,
0: sorry. APANO is the Asian Pacific American Network of Oregon. So it's an advocacy organization um, 501c3. They just started a 501c4, but a lot of it was for advocate advocating for Asian and Pacific Islander communities um, around the state, and so this was a great opportunity, especially in the J district, to look at more place-based community organizing. Because in the past, we've done a lot of work um, with legislative issues and um, organizing for people to. You know, testify, um, other sorts of things like that. So, because I have a you no know, environmental and uh, urban planning background, this was perfect for me. So, I jumped right in as the board and um, as the board mees onto the Jade District. And it was, a, it's been a really great opportunity. We did a community vision in five different languages, which was really cool. We've done a number of work. Um, one of them that was really kind of exciting was we received a EPA contract through the Multicultural Collaborative, that's a consulting firm that I own, to do a three-day design charrette, called, um, and it was through the EPA Sustainable Communities Program. So it was called Greening America City, so all about climate change and, and green, greening communities. So I brought together a group of designers and other folks, and we held another workshop. In three languages, and our architects and designers, um, were actually four languages, Cantonese, Mandarin, and Vietnamese, and our architects got to speak to yeah. their community, which they would never ha- really had been able to do before.
1: Right. I'm curious to know, though, it, it was not always called the J District. And what was it, what is it, what was it referred to before? What was it called? Or?
0: Well, I think it was called, well, it was close to what they called Felony Flats. It was also called, like, you know, 82nd was where all the uh, prostitutes, sex workers were. So it was known as a place where people really didn't want to be. Yeah. So And interestingly, too, is Portland had a really lively Chinatown, downtown. It used to be J- Japantown as well. Um, over on the, um, I guess that's on the south end of Portland downtown, and a lot of folks got displaced there, and just as, you know, gentrification happens in communities, and uh, a lot of the Asian communities in particular moved out this way. So it's about five miles from downtown, probably because nobody wanted to be out here. As I mentioned, it was, you know, nicknamed Felony Flats, and there's a lot of issues with prostitution, and it's a big 4 lane highway that the city doesn't own. So people drive really fast. There's been lots of fatalities. We, we looked at it. There's huge heat island effects. So a lot of health issues. Of issues. Yeah, a lots lot of issues.
1: issues. So you already started to speak about language, which is a big emphasis in this show. Yeah, I, I, I when I asked the question about the J District, I just kind of posted as a means of starting this dialogue mm-hmm. with you because... It's it's important to like like we we be, we we began this conversation right acknowledging some of the native people's lands who lived here, then at some point this pavement showed up 82nd, and then at an, an, a different point it's now called Jade District. In the future, perhaps it will be called something else. So, you are someone who has now experienced, ha, has led a lot of engagement work with the community on topics of both the urban setting as well as sustainability or or how we relate to land more specifically right so I'm curious to know how is it that you experience language and what are the things that that you keep in mind as you try to bring your community along as well as bring commu- bring other folks who are important stakeholders in in these conversations
0: yeah I, I love that um, kind of concept of the language as it relates to this kind of work we do, because what I like about it is language um, changes just as culture and the environment and climate changes. So I think, for me, I find it just fascinating and, um, you know, being kind of an elder, just trying to keep up on what's going on, not only with the language, but just how how concepts are changing, which is really fascinating. You know, just how people talk about, you know, who who talked about frontline communities five years ago? That was a new concept, right? Uh, Who talked about, um, you know, using pronouns 10 years ago? That was new. You know, and just even language related to climate, um, language related to engagement and, and the, the way we do our work has really changed. And so that's what I love about it. It's, it's creative um, and it's co-created by the community as things change. I mean, even just the things that happen, has happened here in Oregon over the last year, I've just, you know, besides COVID hitting... You know, and I, I kind of use this sort of thing besides COVID and Asian hate crimes and then George Floyd's murder. And then we had all the wildfires with all the smoke settling in here for weeks that freaked everybody out. And then we had that major storm, winter storm, a couple of weeks ago. I think it was a couple of weeks, about a month ago that was pretty devastating for a lot of people. All these are climate issues. They're also social issues, COVID, you know, talking about variants. So I just see all of this just accelerating to the point that we need to be really taking care of each other in that manner because my daughter, who's really cute, she told me this was maybe three or four years ago when we had another wildfire up in the gorge. And the smoke settled in here in Portland again for maybe four or five days as well. The sun was bright red, and it, people were really scared. And she said, you know, Mom, I've heard all about climate change. You know, she saw Al Gore talk about it and things like that. She goes, I just didn't think it would happen this soon. Mm. So it was just, and it just feels like it's accelerated. You know, looking at weather patterns change. You know, my family in Hawaii, just recently there's a huge rainstorm with floods and um, Things washed out and landslides. And so um, it's, you know, storm surge. So all the coastal properties now are, um, you know, pretty much uninhabitable. So uh, the acceleration of this has been really
1: um, astounding and concerning. Yeah. Folks who have come into the show will say we need an all-hands-on-deck approach, right? Everybody needs to be engaged in this in some way, shape, or form. And I think we only are able to do that effectively if we allow each community to do their own organizing, to do their own learning. And many times just support what they are already doing, right, and not try to reinvent the wheel. So I'm excited to dive into a little bit of those issues with you. But before that, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Okay. Welcome back to the show. We are here with the Climate Frontline podcast. I'm speaking with Anita Yap, and we have been diving a little bit into the land here that now is modern day referred to as Portland, Oregon. Some of the stories that took place leading up to 82nd slash now the J District. And I'm excited to continue this conversation with you, Anita. Thank you again for for being in the show. And the question that comes to mind right now is, we're on the Climate Frontline podcast. How would you define the Climate Frontline?
0: That's great. Well, I would say the Climate Frontline are the communities that are experiencing the most devastating effects of climate change. I think I mentioned to you a little bit about my family from Hawaii and um, other Pacific Islands in particular, from my experience and my culture is, they're the ones experiencing it the most, you know, sea level rise, um, not even just that, but some of these um, storms that are happening out there, in particular, the storm surge and floods that are happening. Um, So we've been talking about this for the last maybe 10 years, um, and I think organizing and it's not only just the climate piece, but it's also the health issues, public health, mental health as well, which it's all related. So um, I think thinking about that as far as the, the communities that are experiencing the most devastating effects, just even like here in Oregon, the most recent wildfires, which were pretty amazing on for Oregon to see wildfires like that. I, you probably know I used to be a, a wildland firefighter in my past life, and I was a forester. And we never saw fires like this. This was a fire that went up and down the whole Cascade Range in so many different places. But really the people who experienced the worst effects were the people, um, you know, a lot of the farm workers. I think There's a a big um, Latinx community down in Southern Oregon who, you know, some of them lived in some of those mobile homes that burned up and were people whose jobs depended on this, um, that have been just devastated. And so those kind, of, those kind of communities I see as the frontline communities that are affected the most and, from my perspective, have the least amount of influence and opportunity to um, help with change. However, there's some really great organizing uh, locally that is going on with that. So I'm excited to see. I'm working with Unite Oregon. And we just um, received a a contract with Oregon um, Department of Environmental Quality to engage communities around um, climate change and greenhouse gas emissions and do some trainings to help them understand, you know, this sounds just really boring, (laughs) but to help them understand how the state legislature does administrative rulemaking so that they can come and testify at rulemaking committees and help influence that. I mean, this is huge because the state, I've never seen the state do something like this. And so um, I'm excited to be working with Unite Oregon who has field offices in several counties um, in rural Oregon as well, and that are doing organizing around um, climate justice.
1: Hmm. Yeah, interesting. And I think for me, where my mind goes is for a lot of these communities, the folks that we've described as, as the climate frontline and I agree with a lot of what you said. I, I think these people also have a, a lot of knowledge and history with them, right? They're rich in many different ways, and I don't think they are just, quote-unquote, low-income people and, quote-unquote, vulnerable communities. There's truth to that, but I also think that they are well-positioned to take on some of these issues, and I hope that by this initiative that you are part of, some of that can can um transform the systems, right? So that those folks at the front line are able to to be part of that change and, and, and transform our economies really, right? So thank you for sharing that, Anita. I think it's it's interesting to to hear your perspective both through your work but also uh, how you're able to identify the climate front line here in in, in the Pacific Northwest and specifically here in In Oregon right
0: yeah and you know some of the well I would say some of the work all of the work I do I mean especially with my business is is mission and vision values focused so I only do work where I know it's going to benefit the community so as part of this work I call it building capacity in the government organizations Mm -hmm. they've never done this before I know (laughs) <laughs> the state or you know environmental quality in particular so we're helping them understand how to engage with communities um, and the, the policy piece they may think you know they're you know we're teaching the community but it's really we're being, we're teaching the folks at the state agencies and the legislature on how to really understand and listen as you mentioned the the, the wisdom of the community and experience because They're living it, they know what it is. They just have not been given the opportunity to participate in that way. So um, it's a really, you know, and this is just kind of the way I do it. And, uh, you know, some of the best practices is we're compensating folks um, to participate in some of this training and engagement as well, so that they're getting paid just like, you know, the state government people are when they're asking them questions. So it helps equalize a little bit as far as kind of the power dynamics related to the, the financial piece. They're not just extracting expertise from the community without um, compensating them for it.
1: Yeah. So tell me, y- you mentioned capacity building, and I think it's important to, to, to do that work so that more access is created, more conversations take place, and more communities participate in these processes, right? My question that's next, I think, deals a little more of what happens within community besides the capacity building of, of other entities. So within a community, what do you think is the one thing that's most overshadowed in allowing them to build their own systems, build their own behaviors, to head towards resiliency? I'm not necessarily, and, and I'm being very key with resiliency here because I'm not saying green the community, or make them more sustainable, right? <laughs> it's, it's two different things. And I'm using resiliency as means of, hey, they can feed themselves. They can uh, po- police, quote-unquote, themselves, or they can take care of themselves, right? They can take care of their elders. They can take care of their youth. They can take care of nourishing back the land, the air quality, the transportation, the mental health. What is the one thing that you would say you really need to be mindful of in order to collaborate with these communities? Just one thing? Just one thing. (laughs) Oh, my gosh.
0: Well, I am going to start from the point is community is not a monolith. And so from my experience. I don't know what monolith is. I really don't. Well, it's just like not all (laughs) Asians are the same or, you know, the Asian Pacific Islander. You know, there's like 107 languages just in Oregon in the Asian Pacific Islander communities. So we all have different ideas on, you know, what we should be doing, different culture, different language, different religion, different politics. Okay. So what I mean by that is that um, some communities are better, have have had a head start on um, engaging with kind of government organizations to kind of get the resources, um, as as you've probably seen in Portland. And so that's great. But actually, as time has gone by, these community organizations have become gatekeepers. So there's a lot of other folks maybe less represented, um, especially from a racial or ethnic standpoint, in the community that, Probably should be getting more resources, but they're not. So there's a lot of infighting among folks and a lot of competition. and it's set up that way. Um, somebody said once, you know, we're here fighting over the scraps while everybody else is at the buffet line. you know yeah. so really that it's kind of, that that is the one thing I think that is um, I want people to know is like, oh yeah, now we've got you know an Asian community organization. we have a you know, Latino, organization a black organization so you know we've got it it's like no and it just like you said how communities evolve as well um, so so does kind of community organizations and who they represent so um, I think that's I I want the work that I do I am often cautioning folks to say why don't you bring in other people that have not participated than the ones you've been working with for the last five years. That's is great, but they've got the capacity. They've hired staff to be political advocates and you know, which is great, but they're not speaking for everybody. Yeah. So I'm always advocating for people that t- to continue to come and not have the same people, but you you've seen this, that it's kind of the same people representing the same organizations and I have to admit I've been tapped a lot and I'm saying I'm not the only Asian Pacific Islander in East Portland. There's a bunch, but they don't know anybody. And so I said, I know 20 people that you can bring in. And so yeah. I see that as my, my job and my mission. And I'm also as kind of a one that wants to build, I mean, it's not build capacity, but it's more of, um, I'm a mom. So I, I really want to see the younger generation uh, take over and I'll have to say from my perspective people my age need to step step aside or step back and let younger folks lead because they haven't done a good job up until this point. <laughs> so that's I, re- I like to be behind folks and and bring in young younger people to work with and have them lead. It's just my
1: um, one of my big values. Yeah, I like what you're sharing and it's w- w- what comes up for me is also that you and I are able to navigate those places, right? And so it's easier for said organization to reach out to us and say, hey, because we understand what they're looking for and so we can engage with them. And even though it may not be paid and it may not be something that is in, in, in an agreement, we then do more work by bringing our community members along, right? And to me, it's like, some of those community members who are not participating are already doing that work. They're just not calling it whatever they want to call it. And it's just the way they live as immigrants, as people of color, as many other diversity of, of lives that come together. So I really appreciate that from from you, Anita. And, and so I think that begs the question, right? So you mentioned there's community organizations that do their best to represent some of the needs and and self-motivations of of diverse communities across portland oregon as well and they could always do a better job right so for a youth who may be listening to this right now right now we're in COVID time so in many ways community has been fractured right you don't have uh, community meetings as much now they're all zoom calls and we all know we get bored of that and i'm sure someone's listening to this right now walking their dog thinking like yeah i have a zoom call coming up next great <laughs> getting back to the question youth what is their role as as you painted this picture with community organizations do they engage online to what extent is that moving things forward yeah what what are your what is your message to youth as they start to think about being in community, supporting their elders, supporting their community members.
0: Yeah, it's challenging. Um, what I think is it's time. You know, and I, I've been saying this for a long time. You know, the revolution <laughs> needs to start, and I'll be right behind you. I, I want the youth, you know, and I've seen some great stuff that a lot of the youth have done as well. Um, so I think just go for it. And there's a lot of folks like me that will be right behind you to support you. And that's really my, my job is where I am in, at this point in my life and my career. Um, and I think what's, what's interesting as well, a lot of the youth, and I can speak for my, my children, you know, they're, they're biracial, multiracial, you know, bicultural. So it's a whole different world than it was like when I was growing up or my parents so what does that look like? You know, from a you know, community development standpoint to an engagement standpoint to what, what keeps people together to help make a movement. And so um, I just am really interested to see how, how the, the youth and younger people create that because I think that's, that's a great opportunity to create a different world than we're at. Because right now, it's just, you know, it's just a shit show. <laughs> just to say, it's just, you know, who knows ne- what's going to come next, you know? We've had the fires, we've had storms, we've got, you know, I am getting prepared for the uh, Cascadia, you know? It's the one thing that hasn't happened yet. And, you know, they've been talking about this for a really long time. So
1: it's, you know, bring it on. It's, it's likely going to happen soon yeah and for those folks that may not know that the cascadia i think what you're referring to is the earthquake Mm -hmm. right yeah yeah and that's another way in which energies of of earth manifests itself so and and actually it's a great topic i think that i would like to spend more time on because from these events too come opportunities to rebuild and, and and do things differently right yeah.
0: And I've been watching too, as you may have seen, you know, we're on this ring of fire, right? Mm-hmm. On the, the West coast and Asia and the islands, um, on solstice, Kilauea crater, lava started flowing. So, you know, there was a big lava flow in, uh, on the big Island in Hawaii, I think it's mm-hmm. 2018. And it, it, you know, burned up a bunch of houses and they added a whole square mile to the island of lava flow. Wow. Um, it actually overflowed into Pune geothermal that was put in there and it was not wanted by the people on the island. So Pele was talking, which I thought was great. Pele is the goddess of um, the volcano. Uh, And so so anyway, it stopped maybe 2019. And um, on solstice of last year, the lava in the Kilauea crater by volcano, that volcano has started flowing again. Mm. Which was kind of an interesting um, timing, and um, so since we're on this Ring of Fire, and you know we're here in the Cascadia Subduction Zone, you know I've been watching you know number of er- um, earthquakes that have been happening out in the ocean, and it's pretty active. So, um, and they've been talking about this for years that we're in for probably a pretty big um, earthquake, and how are we going to prepare for that? And I think that will be another. I would say, opportunity and challenge on how are we going to support each other in community? You know, because it's going to probably, of course, impact the frontline communities the most. That's what I was going to say, (laughs) too. Right? And all the people with a lot of the resources, are they going to be open and willing to, like, come together? Because the government is not, there's not going to be enough time or resources for government and other organizations we're going to have to rely on each other. Mm-hmm. So I think that's another thing to be thinking about is who is your, you know, who is your mutual aid, what do you how are you prepared? You know, do you trust? And you know, this is a hard time to be trusting. You know, we're talking about the Asian hate crimes and and I was telling you earlier that every this is I've had this happen my whole life, you know. World War II, people hated the Japanese. They thought I was Japanese you know korean war they thought it was korean so they hated the koreans vietnam they hated the vietnamese so they hate you know so uh, even though I'm, I'm not japanese korean or a vietnamese uh, you know asian is the thing in the u.s and even now more asian hate crimes of elders so um it's great that's getting some press and it's been going on for a really really long time
1: yeah well I hope there's an opportunity in the future to maybe bring you on the show again and, and talk more about that. Clearly, it's this is just the beginning of a conversation, and thank you so much, Anita, for being on the show. And I would encourage youth who may be listening to this podcast and you're maybe considering getting into the environmental field, if it's okay with you, Anita, to reach out to you if if ever needs a, a time to discuss these things with you, because I know you are, you have this you're able to really sense what's going on with communities and, and really feel out how they're feeling and how they're experiencing other partners that may be you know, coming in or even being within different cultures in in the work setting. So thank you so much for being in the show.
0: I definitely will. And just so you know, too, besides my multicultural collaborative, I also have a side business, and this is my passion project, is I actually do job coaching um, and mentoring for young Um, Black Indigenous and uh, women of color. I also work with men of color as well, but uh, it's it's my commitment as my value of, you know, at least having some hope for the
1: future. Okay, so now that you have the plug, (laughs) tell me where can folks reach out to you at and and what's the best way to get. So I have a
0: website. It's A and Associates, and that's my um, coaching. Uh, And my other business at the Multicultural Collaborative is actually doing a lot of the policy and um, engagement. And I also have a website on multiculturalcollaborative.com.
1: Okay. All right. You have heard from Anita Yap. (laughs) Thank you so much for being the show, Anita.
0: Thank you, Alfredo. It was wonderful to speak with you today.
1: Okay. Well, I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Anita Yap. She is a... Someone who I really look up to, I actually got to know her first, just we were doing like a a community of practice white paper on trying to address some of the gentrification effects of, of public investments. And since then, it has been several years where I've just gotten to learn from her and learn about how she does community engagement and has really allowed me to shape my own style of community engagement as well so i hope you enjoyed my conversation with anita yap you have turned into the climate frontline podcast the show the community where we interview folks who are in industries artists social movements to put the microphone a little closer to those communities who are at the front line of climate change we are found in all major podcasting platforms, including Apple Podcast and Spotify. If you are interested in asking a question, maybe for Anita or for myself or other community members, be sure to visit climatefrontline.com and leave us a voicemail there or a question, whatever it may be. If you enjoyed this conversation, also be, sh- be sure to share it with a friend and pass on this, this, this one conversation we have in the show I am excited to continue this tour in the Pacific Northwest. And yeah, I will see you next time at the Climate Frontline. Peace.